Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Shop and Growth Magazine, the magazine of RestaurantOwner.com. And today we're bringing back for some additional discussion, some very good friends of ours, Meredith Sandlin, Carl Allsborn. You know them as the Delivering the Digital Restaurant Duo. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about how convenience and the delivery experience in the industry has been maturing. And they've got some new things up their sleeve to share. So Meredith, Carl, welcome back to Corner Booth. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Both of you are pretty well known in the industry. You got a lot of recognition, certainly from your book and other things you're doing. And we usually start these these podcasts just, you know, introducing our guests to our listeners, although I know I'm sure a lot of them are familiar with you. But Carl Meredith, can you just kind of a little background of your foray into the restaurant industry? It's it's an interesting background. It's a long background, but just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with you as many of the people in the industry aren't. So they get a little better sense of where you came from and, and where you're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are both uh, reformed big company people. I was at Taco Bell, owned by Yum Brands for many years. And Carl, for most of his career, was at BP running the AMPM convenience store chain out here on the West Coast in the US. And we both left big company land in search of entrepreneurialism and adventure and a strong belief in the changing restaurant landscape as Americans seek healthier, fresher food, more convenience, all of those things, and ended up together at Kitchen United, which, for those who don't know it, is a ghost kitchen here in the U.S. We were both very early employees setting up the business model and operating model, raising the initial money from Google Ventures and getting it off the ground. So that is where our stories intersected. And then when we left Kitchen United, you're right, we wrote the first Delivering the Digital Restaurant. And that has been very well received. And now we have a follow-up book. So that's one of the new things that we'll talk about. Good. Excellent. Carl. Well, you know, this is the first, we've done plenty of these podcasts and this is the very first time we've done a duo intro. Meredith, you, I've never <laughs> had that happen before. I was, like, well, I, was try- I was trying to shorten it up because I like it. Yeah, well, that's, probably that's know be- you. <laughs> that's, because you that, that's because you know I do like to talk. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think the the interesting thing for, for us, Barry, Chris, was the the excitement that came as a result of writing this book. I mean, clearly we started writing this before the pandemic. When when Meredith spoke to you the first time, the uh, idea of the book was obviously out there. We were just starting to get the, the awareness of the book out there. But boy, did we choose a good time to write a book about something that was so, so pertinent. But when we set out, you know, this was at a time when people were still figuring out ghost kitchens. And we were trying to just help people understand why this off-premise channel was something to take seriously. And so everything that followed since then has been incredibly exciting for us both because, you know, we've been talking at conferences both here in the US and further afield. Meredith's off to Amsterdam in a few weeks to talk over there at the International Ghost Kitchen Conference. You know, and I think the benefit for us has been the book is uh, a medium 
to share the stories of a hundred or so executives, both in restaurants, but also in technology companies that have been shaping the innovation that has been uh, obviously proliferating over these last um, last few months. And the, the, the challenge that we realized when we wrote the first book is that if we were trying to answer the case of why restaurants should take this seriously, the, right. the questions that we have then run into since that point is like, great, I get it. We're, we're on board. The pandemic has proven this is, this is the case. Now, how do we do it? And we've been writing blog articles for, for your own uh, publication, of course, Barry, but we've been writing also on others and we've been doing our own podcast ourselves, uh, which has now been re- renamed the, the Digital Restaurant to try and help restaurants understand some of these best practices that we've identified through our network. But that is also what led to the second book. And uh, the the second book is is called under the same name, Delivering the Digital Restaurant, but it's called The Path to Digital Maturity. And the, the reason why we've written this is more to get into the how and to help restaurants realize after these last few years of, you know, very tumultuous challenging circumstances for every restaurant, big and small, where they actually are on the digital maturity pathway. And to recognize that now we're moving into an area where you don't have to, you don't have to spray and pray with your strategies. You've actually got quite a convoluted tech stack in all likelihood. You know, we estimate many restaurant chains to somewhere between 15 and 20 technology solutions. And the reality is most restaurants aren't using those technology solutions to their optimal capability. And now in this environment where the challenges of inflation, both from cost of products as well as on labor, are starting to impinge upon the overall P&L, we, we suggest that CTOs and CFOs are saying, well, how can we do this better? Do we need to do this? Right. And so our book is really trying to say, find where you're at. Find where your digital maturity situation is at. Get good in that particular area. And we share a bunch of tips and recommendations on how to optimize your presence on wherever you're on the path, but then lay out a journey of what lies ahead. And I think many restaurants may say, you know what, we only want to get to this stage of digital maturity and others might want to go the full hog. And you know, the, the whole idea of the book is that it helps people find their place and understand what it's going to take to move along that pathway. And hopefully we succeed. Well, we would certainly... Hope so. I, I, for one, love that structure. I think you're right on the money. When we went through delivering the digital restaurant, I think it was an excellent educational experience and certainly did speak to the why, what's coming, why, why it's important, wake up and pay attention. Our audience that you're speaking to are hands-on independent restaurant operators. Barry and his approach to the Articles in the magazine are always specific about citing the issue and giving a how-to approach. So that really leads us then to where it'd be nice to spend most of our discussion, and that's on path to digital maturity. If it's speaking to the how, well, then that's exactly uh, what our listeners are sort of used to hearing. Um, maybe you could kind of give us a little broad brush of those steps of how, and we may be able to ask you to go into some more detail about a couple of them that we think our listeners are going to be more attuned to. And just, if I can just add one more thing, because I want to sit back and listen to all this, but in light of the fact that, you know, we mostly address the challenges of the independent operator, something maybe um, just to maintain their attention as you're going through this, in your mind is the accessibility 
um, and democratization, if that's the proper word, of technology that we're seeing in other parts of our lives, is that going to help level the playing field for the independent to um, leverage these technologies as well as the chains, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, let's start maybe with the first part first, and then we'll come back to a conversation about um, the independence and how they can benefit. Uh, the book really um, goes deep into each step of the maturity path. And as we said, the how, so we're starting with how do you actually get your restaurant found on digital platforms, whether that be a marketplace or Google um, how do you use these tools to make your restaurant the search result that is going to appeal to someone who's hungry? And we talk a lot about various tips and tricks for maximizing what I'll call uh, SEO within the marketplaces and also on uh, Google. Once you've been found, the next question is, uh, I think for everyone, how do you get these hungry people who want convenience to order directly from you instead of through a marketplace. I think everyone intuitively understands um, that even if they're raising their prices on the third parties, the profitability is probably better on the first parties because they can't make them fully equal. Uh, And that having that direct relationship with a consumer is great for remarketing. It's great for customer service. It's great for brand engagement. Um, and so for all those reasons, uh, where possible, I think restaurants want to have consumers ordering first party or direct from their restaurant. Um, so we talk a lot about various uh, important things to be doing to make that happen. Once those two things have have occurred, that's like the basics of uh, going through this, this digital maturation, right? Get those two things right. And that sets the foundation for all of the next things Uh, that you might be trying to do. Um, So I'll pause there after those two um, to see if there's follow-up questions and then hand it to Carl to talk about the next two. Well, maybe the one question I have, and it might be a little premature, is that, you know, uh, of course, particularly with the pandemic, but many restaurants um, adopted your thesis and and saw the importance of of off-premises dining and and how... um, having a good digital press is important. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I, I wonder about is that there's there are operators where they say, hey, listen, my on-premises dining is coming back. I don't want to give up off-premises. And one of the um, ideas that has been presented by others and something that, I've, that I have accepted is that if you have off-premises and on-premises, that's great. They're two different businesses. They're two separate businesses. They're managed differently. They're marketed differently. You now have two separate businesses under that one brand. So I'll just throw that out there, and you can address that in, in whatever order you think it's uh, it's worth addressing. Well, yeah. I I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I agree with that on two fronts. One is, you know, my background is Taco Bell, and they have a dine-in business and a drive-through business. And even though they're happening in the same building that uh, building has been completely optimized to run two different businesses. And by that, I mean, there are two separate production lines, one for dine-in, one for drive-through. There's two separate order points, one for dine-in, one for drive-through. Two separate fulfillment windows, one for dine-in, one for drive-through, right? And so instead of trying to uh, run those two very different channels out of the same process, they're running two separate processes and optimizing each of them separately. 
now as a brand, they're advertising the brand, right? They're not uh, talking to drive through customers about the brand one way and dining customers about the brand in another. Um, but when it comes to the process and the business model, even though they're in the same building, they operate very, very separately. Um, so I wholeheartedly agree with that throughout restaurant history. I think that's been true. And then as we get into delivery, um, certainly what I'm doing now um, with Empower Delivery, we would say um, 100%. Like these businesses are so, so different. And particularly for people who have a dine-in sit-down experience, you can really ruin that by having a bunch of drivers, you know, cycling through, coming and picking things up. And vice versa, you can make life pretty horrible for consumers who are doing takeout or for drivers when they're trying to come into what's meant for a dine-in experience. Um, you know, my favorite restaurant, uh, sushi restaurant here locally, got a huge bump in takeout business over the course of COVID. And great for them, um, their dine-in business has started to come back. And they have this lovely outdoor patio, and it's great. So they have dine-in outside, and then they've got the pickup inside. But when they get busy and people want to sit inside, it's a terrible experience. And it's terrible because guess what? They've increased the lighting um, so that the expo can match up all the orders correctly. So it's no longer like a romantic sushi place. It's now like a bright back of house. And they have um, taken three tables and smushed them together and used it as a staging area for all the product going out the door. And then they've taken a booth and just filled it with takeout packaging because they have no other place to store it. And so if you're a dining customer, you're sitting there basically in like an expo station. It's terrible, right? And those two things shouldn't be combined because you're making a bad experience for both um, in terms of how it actually feels to be the consumer or the driver. Um, but you're also probably doing a disservice to the underlying economics of each business. Boy, that's what a good point. And I think our listeners are probably immediately taking notes because most of them probably fall into that category. Um, most of the people that we work are, are working with now, I think would be nodding their heads saying, okay, that's where I'm stuck. The good news is I did go with convenience. I have great packaging and my curbside pickup, third-party delivery went crazy. Good for me. Okay, now my dining room is full, but I'm still balancing third-party delivery and car-side pickup. So they have to uh, adopt to this, how to make both businesses equally successful with a trampling on the other. Um, no one wants to walk in to say the lobby and be greeted by their hostess, but also have two Metro racks that are six feet. That's right. Yeah. With the signs hanging, you know, yeah. you invested $2 million years. in your beautiful build out. And then you put a Metro rack in it with a bunch of cardboard on it. Like it makes no sense. <laughs> it, it, we're giggling a true experience working with them. Now we will protect the names because we don't want to insult any of the innocent, but, but it, no, it's a true thing. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm, it's happening to a lot of people. Yeah. Heating the call of convenience does require some smoothie. So perhaps you give some examples or helpful, I, I like that terminology, tips and tricks in the book for people to realize that maybe we could work on a slight separation of design or better utilization of a hallway so that we're, we're maybe doing side doors for this and front doors for this. And we're not you know, ruining an ambiance of an evening just because we want to hold on to our convenience and uh, online order. Well, you'll remember, Chris, from the original book, we talked about drive-through. Uh, and the, the reason we spoke about drive-through and the time it took for it to be truly adopted 
into the restaurant industry was because it was very similar to the challenges that exist today in the sense of how do you run a drive-through, an optimized drive-through, unless you adapt the entire operation appropriately so that you can service your on-premise guests and your drive-through guests in the best way possible. And today, that's why you have things like the, the kind of QSR drive-through awards, which are rewarding seconds being saved on average times every year. And I think that is where we're at right now when it comes to delivery and pickup. You know, only last night, I was going to my, my one of my favorite Italians, you know, the one Meredith, and mm-hmm. I was I, the, the, the dining room was full. It was wonderful. It was absolutely full. And I was there in a line of four people waiting to pick up. Now, there are three people front of house that were responsible for managing reservations and taking guests to the tables. There was one person responsible for pickup. And so what were me and my fellow uh, customers in the pickup line doing? Waiting, waiting for almost 12 minutes, five minutes after the time of desired pickup. And so the optimal experience for the guest in that example, the pickup guest, wasn't great. And also the distribution of time and allocation of resource to support that both those functions wasn't optimized. So I think this kind of leads on to the next area of the book that we, we, we touch on, which is more about making space, if that makes sense. Because if the first part of the book is, and we think 70, 80% of restaurants remain in this first part of the book, by the way, you know, we think there's still a lot of opportunity in thinking about the customer experience, especially on a, a first party basis. Um, but once you've got to that place, you should be in a situation where you're really churning out orders, whether it be through the third parties or through your own direct channel. Um, but this is where it becomes challenging because here you're now starting to get a lot of data. And so this next section of the book really starts to say, well, how do you use data in the best way possible to both inform the ability for you to maintain an ongoing relationship with your guests, but also to start optimizing the way in which you're managing your business in the, you know, the good example would be with regard to scheduling appropriate people with my experience last night. Um, And we start to talk about uh, the idea of treating a restaurant company like an e-commerce company and the idea of how do you understand the right metrics to be able to determine where you are deploying your marketing resources effectively. So whether that be um, things such as uh, bounce rate, you know, the amount of customers that are leaving your website because perhaps they haven't found what they're after, or maybe the process to go through your website ordering process is particularly slow. Um, where we look at conversion rate, how many guests are actually converting to purchasing from you and where are they actually leaving on the order flow? All of these different pieces are, are helpful information to optimize your presence. And it's much the same way as any e-commerce retailer would think about it today. And I, and I think that's really important because A lot of time we talk about data from the standpoint of customer data. And of course, that is absolutely critical. We cover that in this particular part of the pathway as well, because that obviously allows you to develop a better understanding of how to grow your average lifetime customer value. And and that obviously then makes more sense for you to be able to establish an appropriate level of investment in in marketing. But again, once once you've got to that situation, we're then in, in a situation where we've been able to say, well, How do you then use that data to adjust your operation? How do you look at the way in which your kitchen is laid out? How do you think about the front of house to Meredith's earlier example associated to pickup areas? The operation needs to change more than what it's being changed today to be able to accommodate 
the potential level of off-premise sales available for restaurants. And so we, in the fourth chapter of the book, we, we explore principles of ways to think about the operation, ways to think about making you um, consider how can you maximize the available capacity and the throughput rate of dishes, whether they be for on-premise or off-premise. Well, you know, as a, uh, someone who's been in university education for a long time, including hospitality management, um, to me, um, that would seem to be an important part of the curriculum for anybody coming out of those programs and the people who you'd want to hire, who can analyze data and then put it to work. Um, the only thing I, I'm, I'll, I'll follow up with that 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 comment in terms of the POS companies, are, are, are they keeping up with the integration of these um, utilities, um, dashboards and analytics well enough to, um, to really optimize the kind of things that you recommend operators do? I, I love that question. I don't, I don't think they are, to be honest. I mean, this will be a challenge to all the technology companies, which um, Carl and I like to put out quite often, which is, you know, you've got all these restaurants who need you and uh, you need to give them the right tools as well as the customer success to help them use those tools because the stuff is all new, right? And when we were writing that chapter that Carl was just talking about, about all the data and we were thinking, well, you know, there should just be an e-commerce funnel to say, you know, just like they do in e-commerce, you know, how, how productive are your ads? How are people clicking through? Do they get down? Is there cart abandonment? All the same things that you would expect in e-commerce. And although the merchant portals on the back end of people like DoorDash and Uber are starting to give some of that data, it's not uniform. You can't compare it. It's not linear, like literally here's the funnel from top to bottom. Here's how a consumer steps through and and there's no direction. It doesn't say, okay, well, your your number on this is good or bad, and here's how you would make it better. Um, it just kind of spits out a number. And so it's very early days, right? I'm not, I'm not saying this to um, put these companies down at all, but just very early days that they haven't gotten to the point where even they are starting to proactively use the data and share it back with the restaurants. Yeah. Um, so then how do you expect your restaurant to do it, right? A, a good example of this is what, where we talk about throttling, right? And, and so you could argue the technology companies have listened to restaurants and they said, well, I've got too many orders coming in. I need something to help me stop the orders. And so they created, and Meredith always tells me about this big button she saw in one restaurant once, um, th th this ability for restaurants to turn off online ordering and as a result you know quench the ability for you to better service that off-premise demand because the restaurant has said i can't cope at certain times i need an ability to filter that so you could argue the pos companies and the folks that enable the throttling capability have listened to restaurants and been able to say we've been able to accommodate it we would make the case to say just because technology allows you to do it doesn't mean you should do it. In fact, in many ways, you should ask yourself, what is it about your operation that's stopping you from being able to cope with that? Is it because of the complexity of menu items? Is it because of the time it takes to create those items? Should you have a, a smaller menu? Because that off-premise guest might be the first time they're discovering your brand. And if your digital doors are shut, you may not get another chance of being able to support them in the future. And that perhaps is, from a lifetime value perspective, an opportunity for that customer to come in and experience your restaurant in person in the future. And so the POS companies for sure are completely overburdened right now with a plethora of so many requests from restaurants, 
but also from other functional uh, support aids, if you will, like my company, Inducer, asking for integrations to be able to help them do their thing. And the challenge is, is that they've only got a certain amount of space and bandwidth in their own product teams to develop that functionality. And we're running then into this challenge of being able to say, can the tech keep up with the customer need? And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges. And so I think a lot of PRS companies have a very wide, very long product roadmap, but they have a limited amount of capability to really deliver on what's most important. And, and sadly for the independent, Barry, um, typically it's the bigger chains and their need state that gets developed first. And, and I'm not here to denigrate the POS companies. None, none of us are. But on the other hand, I have to point out that for the last decade, there has been technology, enterprise resource planning technology that helps companies build jumbo jets and um, manufacture very complex products um, and integrate predictive analytics. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that with that technology out there already, it couldn't be scaled down and applied to the restaurant business. But um, uh, yeah, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, <laughs> well, I think I think well, it's starting to be. It is starting might. to be. But what do you say uh, to those who might be listening today? Wait a second. You know, technology advances aren't my problem. Uh, POS could be better. Sure. Uh, technology is faster right now, even though we know there's more advancements to be made. But technology right now is faster than many uh, independents listening today because the independents listening today are stuck in three areas. And maybe your book speaks to this. The reason they sometimes turn off is the same reason that, say, in a full dining experience, they create the waiting list. You know, there's the three things that they're challenged by are complexity of menu, labor and uh, capability of equipment. Uh, if you're just a simple burger guy, no matter how many orders come in or where the orders came in, third-party delivery, curbside pickup, or dining room orders, there's only a certain amount of space, a certain amount of patties, a certain amount of flipping, and a certain amount of minutes it takes to do the burger. So there's only so many I can do at one time. So, so, so you see, that's what we're hearing. Okay, so then we say, hey, isn't the issue maybe equipment design? How can we increase capacity? How can we maybe increase holding time? Is there something to use technology and equipment, some of these interesting moisture Alta shams where you can actually hold par-cooked product so that now you can keep up with your technology? Don't turn it off. Let's try to get the product to move faster. No, you don't have to build a bigger box. We just have to utilize equipment within this box. Maybe there is labor training. Normally there is. <laughs> more education, more labor, more, you know, and more training. But these are the issues that I'm finding out there to help the independents keep up with the technology that's there right now. Uh, I think that's a hundred percent true. A hundred percent. I mean, we, the technology innovation really started on the consumer facing end, which maybe is normal and in most verticals that it starts with the consumer and something that people can see and touch and feel and understand and all of that innovation on the consumer facing end created the complexity of channels, the increase in order volume, the new demand coming from consumers who are switching from grocery to restaurant. All of that's great. But if you haven't fixed the back end to handle that, which is what you're talking about, yeah. um, you know, you end up with a bit of a mess. And so um, I think restaurants today are faced with two challenges. One is around 
just the absolute complexity on the front end, which we believe over time will consolidate down and and winners will acquire other companies and it will become less complicated. You won't have to deal with 15 to 20 different pieces of software. But we also believe there's starting to be a ton of innovation going on in the back of house for exactly this reason. And, you know, I know early on, everyone was very excited about drones and um, you know, hamburger flipping robots and all this kind of stuff. It's probably like a little too complicated for what we're trying to do here. And you don't have to go all the way to drones delivering food in order to make real improvements in the back of house, right? You can do things like give the employees better software that tells them what to do, when to do it, which is what we do out of power delivery. That makes the labor that is there more productive. You can do it with things like smart ovens. So you don't have to go all the way to like, say, I'm going to use the same flat top, but have a robot flip the burgers instead of a human. You can just say, I'm actually going to cook the burgers in a different way. I'm going to par cook them. I'm going to put them in a smart oven, all these things that you're talking about. Um, And those kinds of innovations, I think, are first of all, less scary because it's not like this crazy big change. It's just an incremental change. And second are cheaper to put in, right? Um, You can put in a smart oven for a few thousand dollars. I mean, they're expensive, but they're not as much as like, say, a full robot, right? Um, So as we, as we often say, Carl, you don't have to go full robot. You know, thank you for, thank you for bringing, I'm sorry, Carl, were you going to say something on that? No, no, please. That's fine. Well, thank you for bringing that up because another thing that um, I wanted to um, present to you for your comments, Um, you know, I, 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 one, uh, thesis, which I really like, um, and I've heard from some thought leaders in the industry, and I really uh, um, uh, appreciate it, was, listen, we've got technology out there, but use the technology to free your people to do the things that only human beings can do. He used the example of the kiosk at McDonald's. Why are you ha- paying people to do something that's just merely transactional when you can turn the transaction over to technology and let your people take care of the guests, the hospitality kindness of strangers. And then the other part of that, if the technology is not making, not giving the guests a better human experience, it's not really serving you. And it also needs to create a better experience for your employees to free them up from things that maybe are not, uh, they're stressful to improve the culture of the restaurant. Um, could you speak to that at all? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, all, all of that makes a, a lot of sense to us. And I think the, the the way I would characterize it is the ability for restaurant tech companies today to be able to smooth out the transition of whatever their functional service is to make it easy for a restaurant to be able to adopt and to clearly be able to demonstrate its bottom line impact to the restaurant helps them make a better choice. You know, when, when either of us go to restaurant conferences and we, we turn up at any particular part of the technology footprint that sits out there and we ask a sales individual, what is it that you do and how do you differentiate from everyone else that does what you do? We find it very difficult to get a clean, clear answer. And we're, we're some of the experts in this, right? And so if we're feeling that, how do the average folks that are going out there that are learning about this for the first time so I think there's something about understanding and helping um, helping restaurants understand what functionality they need for where they are. And also, therefore, the technology companies getting better at being able to say, this is where 
we will be when you need us. But right now, we're not there for you. So for example, my yeah. company at the moment, uh, Juicer, we're helping restaurants with dynamic pricing, right? And that's um, in that regard, it's not necessarily helping the, the, the kind of uh, ground level restaurant teams, but the management, the executives make more informed decisions. And rather than have to take one or two price changes a year when costs increase, actually take more of an optimal approach to your pricing based on your, your demand uh, forecast. And we try and create that whole set, setup in such a way that it doesn't impact anyone at the level of the restaurant. So they're not impacted at all by it. And actually it's a case of working within certain constraints to enable the the restaurant to feel comfortable that their margin is going to be optimized based on recommended prices. And I I share that with you because at least in my experiences of speaking to other technology companies that are out there, it's almost almost sometimes just too difficult for the, the benefits to be realized and, or at least at the time to be able to deploy those benefits just, is, is almost too lengthy. And I, and I think that's where, and we have our, in the last chapter of the book, it doesn't really f- necessarily fit in the idea of the pathway. We actually have a chapter that talks to the technologists themselves. And we talk to them in a, in a, in a way to be able to say, this has to be more than just an API. An API today is enabling functionality like my, my, my own at Juicer to talk to a POS company, for example. And that's great. That's great for what Juicer can do. And it's great for the API to be able to say, enable some dynamic pricing functionality. But what we say is, is that these things need to go to another level. And the example we reference in the book is imagine tonight at someone's restaurant, two line cooks call out. And so that perhaps is picked up somewhere in the scheduling functionality, the scheduling technology. So wouldn't it be an amazing ability for the restaurant to have that level of insight flow all the way through the tech stack and all the other APIs so that open table and its capacity that evening is restricted because guess what? The kitchen and its capacity and its throughput has been impacted as a result. What if there was something that went to Juicer and was able to say, well, actually now we want to increase the prices a little bit tonight just to, again, quell the demand a little bit so that we're not actually getting into a situation where we've got too many orders coming through. That level of cross-functionality integration is really about creating a restaurant operating system that is seamless between each of its various different programs. And that doesn't really exist today unless you've got a fully integrated platform like what Meredith is building at Empower. And I think that is, that's, the, that's the journey that we see going um, and coming in the years ahead. And the more the technologists, and that's the POS companies and the uh, ancillary items like, like my company in, in Juicer need to work towards, because I think if we do that, we make it simpler for everyone. Wow, that's an interesting, I mean, that's just an interesting point. Uh, I want to make sure we take a moment to digest that. So that's a great example. In fact, I'm going to grab the book just because I want to read that in greater detail. I want to make sure I understand that. I like the integration aspect, but I'm just not so sure that independence or as well as multi-unit guys concerned about the, the perception of their brand would want integration to say, for this night, because we're shorthanded, we want to slow down the guest let's make sure that we can quickly adjust the prices so that they're higher. The only disadvantage in that is that if, if I'm a new guest and I'm reading this for the first time and I see that something is maybe $10 higher, it's not telling me to order tonight. It may be sending me a message that I don't want to order at all because I think your place is too expensive. I'd, you probably go into maybe that in, in, in greater detail, but I think we have to be careful because I, I like the idea that your approach is, has been to show how um, we can best utilize an integrated technology to build value in the brand. 
And um, maybe you can speak more to that because like Meredith's example of it's not about replacing somebody with a robot. Um, but if the technology could help that person be able to produce more, well, then we're building more sales. We're building value in our brand. Um, and, and we've got a ways to go, I think, as a restaurant industry, just on that point only on how we can become more efficient utilizing technology so we can do more with what we currently have and revenue builds, you know, brand value. Sure. Yeah. And look, there's a guy that you should all follow called Andrew Simmons. He's the president of the RMDA and he's talking very publicly right now about his technology journey at uh, his uh, pizza restaurant. Uh, I think it's called Pizza Ramona's, I think. And he he's talking about how he's working with Picnic and the automation uh, pizza technology there. And, and that's helping him to be able to have that extra level of capacity when they need it. So it's really? not necessarily that it needs to be on all the time, because I think it has like a 350 pizzas per hour type of throughput capacity, which of course you wouldn't need constantly. No. But to be able to have that level of support there so that you're not even having to run into that situation where you have to increase prices or turn things off is really how technology can, can support Chris. But look, I think the point is, is that restaurants having the ability to make decisions and have decision uh, stage gates, if you will, yeah. Uh, is important because there maybe that's not something you'll do when two line cooks call out. Maybe you wouldn't increase the price by ten dollars, but maybe you'd increase it by fifty cents, or maybe you'd say, you know what, we're going to restrict that uh, off premises now, constrained to these six items because they're easier to do. Right? Yeah. You, you could see that happening. The point is today is that the infrastructure behind the technology doesn't exist for those types of things to uh, to really support in most cases. And I think that is where um, it's an exciting future because ultimately the restaurant owner doesn't have to then worry about those things once those rules are set. Yeah, I don't think we would ever say yeah. that you should take yeah. the restaurant owner or management out of key decisions like that, especially ones that affect the brand. Like you don't want that to be a black box that's happening without human intervention. And yet you do want a lot of those things to be automated. And so what that requires is putting some rules around what things you're comfortable with, right? And so in the case yeah. of Juicer, yeah. they could say, well, I don't want it to go higher or lower than this. Or um, in, in the example that Carl gives of the cooks calling out, you could say, you know, we have a hierarchy of things that we want to happen. You know, the first is call in the backup cooks automatically. The second one is... Uh, shift deploy, um, slide deploy some folks from one job to another job who are cross-trained and they're not as good, but at least they'll, we'll have something right. And the third sure. is manager's going to do that job. And the fourth option is, and you might have a hierarchy of things that it goes through that you set up in advance, um, to make it easier for the restaurant itself. Right. Because that, that is always when the meltdowns come in any operation is when something is not quite right. And it's not something you could foresee, right. Someone calls out, yeah, And so yeah. the worst thing that can happen is that the manager jumps in to try to fix it because they're trying to be the hero, make sure everything's okay. And then everything else goes wrong because the manager's not there to manage, right? And yeah. so if you can set up some of those hierarchies in advance, um, that can help the technology do more and help that manager stay focused on managing, right? And it goes back to your example, Barry, of... We always want the humans to do what the humans do best. And so how can we mm -hmm. um, put the server, the host, the manager, every single role in that kitchen, how can we have them doing what they do best? And I, th I think if you can then extend that to items that sit outside the restaurant's immediate control, 
then you can almost turn this into an even wider level of ecosystem. So for example, um, and I love the way Empower does this uh, and with, with cluster trucks. So if there is a certain amount of drivers that aren't available, yeah. how does that then get impacted in terms of the customer experience? So for, for today, there might be a limited amount of drivers available on, let's say, the DoorDash platform. Well, you know, we, we talk to companies like Cartwheel that then can um, utilize the ability for you to take advantage of other logistics fleets and actually prioritize those appropriately when those situations occur. You know, I could see in the future things get into a situation whereby the restaurant can add some form of incentive in the sense of being able to say, um, if you're willing to pre-order and actually have something delivered to you in 90 minutes from now, we'll give you this type of incentive in some way. You know, so there are ways in which I think the technology ultimately is going to give the customer, the end guest, a better experience, but they need to work together better to enable that. In, in terms of managing the restaurant, um, is predictive analytics kind of so 2010 at this point in terms of using, you know, fairly available data in terms of, you know, on on in February when the weather's like this, we tend to not have a lot of traffic. Uh, we don't need to bring as many people in. A lot of people were talking about that five, 10 years ago. Um, it seems like most of the technology uh, right now is to solve problems in real time rather than uh, predictively to say, hey, listen, um, this is how you might want to manage the, the restaurant today. I hope I was, I hope my explanation or my comment yeah. was clear. Well, I think ever, everyone calls it AI right now, which is erroneous. It's not AI, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the idea the idea is what we used to call predictive analytics or giant multivariable regression. Um, now, a lot of people call AI and pretend that it's artificial intelligence. It's not. It's, <laughs> I, in my opinion, it's the same thing. Um, it is a little bit more real time, and that reflects um, how much more computing power we have. The cost of compute has come down so far that we can do these things a little bit more real time. And we can also add machine learning into it so that we're able to see, oh, we predicted this, this is what actually happens, and make adjustments going forward. Um, but all of that, I think, is taking that idea from five or 10 years ago and just making it a little more real time. It's also gotten more accessible. And this maybe goes back to the question that you asked about um, leveling the playing field for independence. And in the old days, 10 years ago, if you wanted to build productive analytics like that, you had to have a fleet of analysts sitting around doing math, coming up with what they thought the, the predictive engine should do, Right. And now you don't need that. You need software, machine learning, you know, a good onboarding, and then anyone can do it. And that is so fundamentally different. Um, you know, you think about 10 years ago when I was at Taco Bell making a market planning approach to say where we should put restaurants and what volume they were going to do. Yep. Fleet of analysts, custom consultants, you know, lots of money spent trying to figure this out. But now, there are SaaS platforms that anyone can pay a monthly fee for, and it will do that in the background in almost real time. And that's a fundamental shift in how much computing power we have available to us and the way in which we can all access it. Yeah, the uh, I, I did this exercise recently on uh, on the pricing subject. So we've just had Super Bowl, right? Probably the biggest sporting event of the year, I think it's fair Ooh. to say. And uh, we did this study across a thousand restaurants across the U.S to see how many of them change price over that Super Bowl weekend. 
Anyone, anyone want to guess how many changed? I have no idea. I'm interested though. I'm going to go with zero, Carl. What, what was it? <laughs> you know, it was zero. It was nothing changed on Saturday or Sunday. And on Monday, um, only eight restaurants increased their prices out of those thousand. And so, so the reason I share that with you is that I think we're still in the place of 2010s, Barry, when it comes okay. to predictive analytics. Yeah. I think, that, and, the, and the part of that is because of, well, what's the capability for us to do something with that data, mm-hmm. right? So I think you'll see restaurants that will obviously prep in advance, right? The operation will prep in advance as best as they possibly can for the demand they anticipate on Super Bowl Sunday. They will probably change their schedules appropriately for Super Bowl Sunday. But when it comes to things like off-premise and optimizing price points and things like that, which are, you know, even outside of off-premise, quite honestly, changing the price point is challenging today, right? Mm -hmm. Going into the POS and changing all those things, it's tough, which is why you find people don't necessarily use the data that's available to them because the capability isn't there. So I think it's, um, it's not just about your ability to use the data and have an informed idea as to what's happening. It's also about the technology that allows you to you know, work on those insights and use those insights. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how much better people can do with information, especially now that the information is so much easier to get. I mean, there, there was a time not too many years ago that if you were a restaurant, you were planning for say something as important as the Super Bowl weekend, you were actually manually going through a sales record to see what was my per person check average over Super Bowl weekend? What was my PMIX? And you were actually reading materials. Okay, well, you know, we're beyond that now. And, you know, we can we can obviously pull the data up. Um, and I think what that has led to is there's a tremendous success and maybe not so much, they say, a price shift, but the amount of restaurants that developed special packages just for that weekend. Oh, yeah, right. There was a lot of that. Yeah, I would love to know the success of that because, you know, just in my own canvassing of people that I know or worked with, 100% of the restaurants had a game day weekend package, either a larger family package that was raised in price for delivery only or a pickup family pack or the, you know, three pounds of ribs at a certain price or you name it, everybody had some special package. It was almost like we're going to ignore the regular menu. It's Super Bowl weekend. So we're going <laughs> to in the face with this whatever cowboy steak and beans was one this three pounds of wings was on everyone was doing something special for the game um and to think that we used to just eat pizza and have chips <laughs> what i like lo- i saw i saw that too and what i love about it is that um a lot of those things smooth demand so instead of everyone ordering at the exact same time some people are coming in and picking up earlier you know i talked to one restaurant in new jersey who did take and bake wings And so um, they would, yes, they would send you out wings delivery the normal way at peak, but they would also sell a whole bunch of them that you could take and bake at home, which just expanded their capacity, right? And I, I love examples like that where restaurants are really thinking creatively about themselves, not just as, you know, traditional restaurant, you know, on demand order, and I bring it to you, but you know, really a, a fulfillment place, a little manufacturing plant that needs ERP, Barry. (laughs) Um, that is able to uh, put out a lot of different product and serve it at different times based on demand, based on the package they put together, based on the price, the channel, all of these things. There was an example like that where somebody told me today that um, 
that for their Super Bowl promo, they did uh, fried turkey legs. And the amount of orders that they had picked up the day before were incredible because it was an easy warm and serve. So, so that gave them, of course, you know, smoothed out pickup. And he said, we sold really almost as much in revenue of fried turkey legs for the game as we did fried old turkeys for Thanksgiving. And I thought, wow. wow. I mean, two years ago, they didn't even do anything for Super Bowl. Yeah. And the turkey was half the price per pound doing it this way, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it is. Anytime people can learn from the data that is being provided and have examples like this being done that say years ago they weren't doing is proof positive of how it works. You know, the just to bring us back to the, the digital maturity path, we kind of move on from ideas of data points, such as an event, such as Super Bowl, and then get into talking about um, abilities for folks to find other ways to grow their reach, their ability to grow top line, whether that be through virtual brands or whether it be through additional uh, capacity from ghost kitchens. But I'll I'll skip over that a little bit to go then go to the section around uh, guest centricity. So what I mean by that is the customer that's ordered those chicken wings you just mentioned, Chris, last time at Super Bowl, or typically reaches out to this restaurant for a catering event of some kind at the in the year, they should have an ability in the restaurant to reach back out to those customers and to be able to tell them about any other equivalent type of catering event because they've done it before. And the more we can get to restaurants creating this personalized one-to-one relationship using that customer data then you're gonna create a situation which is as good as the best on-premise experience that you have when your favorite server remembers you and your partner's names and what you had last time and things like that. That level of guest centricity, I think, is going to be so, so critical. And it's actually then going to almost reformulate the idea of what a loyalty program is, because it will be something beyond punch cards and reward points. It will be actually, I know you, guest, and I'm gonna treat you for who you are and what your preferences are. And I think that is, you know, further along the maturity path, as you can tell from the point that we're talking about it in our conversation, but that is the journey we need to get to, to get to a true optimal experience for everyone. Well, that w- that is a much improved loyalty program, uh, which I realize could be an entire discussion on its own, but really the history of going from a punch card to the way some loyalty programs are so much better now, but to where they can be, as you just described, is incredible because because they work, but they can work so much better. And so that's going to be something that we're going to look you know forward to a lot. And the digital the digital loyalty programs, from what I understand, are 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 used um, are much more widely used than than the uh, old um, analog. Uh, um, I even heard something that you know, and I guess I can identify with this. Men don't usually like to use coupons, but if it's on their phone, then they'll use them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think at times, Barry, it's, it's when you don't even really know that you're part of a loyalty program, right? You don't always, you don't have to have this number all the time. It just, as long as you've got an identifier, you know, I was listening to um, Zach Goldstein uh, from Thanks talk about this recently on a podcast himself, where he was saying, even by using the credit card number as the customer identifier, as the pathway in, to being added into the, the rewards network so that every time that credit card is utilized, that is triggering you in some way the rewards of whatever that program is. And that pathway of being able to get a guest signed up is actually far, far more successful than asking them to fill out their name, their birthday, and their password for an account, right? It, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it through those lens. And again, 
that is what technology and digital uh, can actually bring. It can make things easier in that regard. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, lo- loyalty has a way to go to get to what Zach calls uh, loyalty 3.0, but it, it's very much part of the pathway. And uh, the more restaurants work towards that direction, uh, the more I think everyone's going to have a better off-premise experience ultimately. Well, I, I know time is beginning to slip away, but let's move, if we could, just from this book to to another item that maybe you could give us a little outline on new things that you two are doing together. Oh, goodness. Uh, we, we've been busy. Carl keeps me busy, actually. He's, um, he's uh, very organized, and so he keeps track of me. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is what used to be called the Monday Minute and is now called the Digital Restaurant. Um, And that is a podcast that covers news about restaurants and technology that in some way link back to the book. And so we highlight kind of the most interesting things that have happened over the last two weeks um, and then talk about how they impact restaurants. Um, So that is probably the thing that keeps us the most busy Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, we often try to get to all the main industry conferences, uh, Chris, and so we do that because a you can learn a lot from what folks are talking about, and, and b we we try to encapsulate all of that information and that knowledge, and then share that out, whether it be through the podcast or through a relatively frequent uh, thoughts on the matter on LinkedIn. So if, if folks aren't following us on LinkedIn, that's always a good place to to keep in touch with us and to hear what we're we're thinking and ultimately you know there are there's so much happening there is so so much happening in this space right now and for folks like Meredith and I that try to pride ourselves on keeping a a, a thumb on the pulse of these things we we can't imagine how challenging it is for the independent restaurant owners out there that are having to run you know it's not it's not an easy business to run the re- a restaurant is it and so to be able to keep up to tabs with what's happening in their industry is why i think podcasts like this what you're doing at restaurantowner.com and hopefully our own podcast and our book are are means to support our industry because uh, we wrote the book for the independents you know we wrote the book for your audience it, it's written for them in mind and so we hope that what we're putting out there is certainly a, a service to them and it adds some value to their day fantastic Fantastic. Well, you two are proof positive that we constantly start. Never, never stop learning. Um, it, there's, it's just too, too much out there. Um, and, uh, and I think restaurant operators realize that, too, that we they have to take more time to step away from working in the business to work on their business. The tools you're providing are perfect for that. So I hope, I hope everyone listening today made note of that path to digital maturity, the second book of delivering the digital restaurant. It's out there, it's got powerful points and we can profit by them. And and we should follow up with you and listen to Digital Restaurant Podcast. So uh, thank you guys for joining us today um, for your second trip uh, to Corner Booth. Um, you're going to have to keep on innovating and keep on giving us new points to ponder so you can come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not to worry, we will. And uh, if anyone wants to find the book, of course, it's available on Amazon. Uh, but if you want to support your first party, you can always find us at deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com. Good point. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. And to all of you, thank you so much. And we hope that we can connect real soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.